You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Welcome to episode number 133 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. When we left off last time, it was early May 1862, and the Confederate forces on the peninsula were retreating from the Yorktown-Warwick River defensive line. The Confederate commander, General Joseph E. Johnston, had ordered this preemptive withdrawal in order to avoid the big bombardment that the Union commander, George B. McClellan, had in store for the rebel defenders of Yorktown. McClellan had spent the past month making preparations for his heavy siege artillery to obliterate the Confederate defenses at Yorktown, and by the beginning of May, everything was just about ready. Little Mac's bombardment was scheduled to begin on May 5th, But across the way, Joe Johnston had plans of his own, and they didn't include staying put at Yorktown to be pounded by the big federal guns. After a few delays, Johnston ordered his army to withdraw from their positions on the night of May 3rd. To cover the withdrawal, Johnston ordered a massive artillery barrage of his own. Under the distraction of these impressive fireworks, the Confederate army quietly retreated. The rebels retreated up the peninsula toward the old colonial capital, Williamsburg, about 12 miles away. Due to heavy rains, the Confederate withdrawal from Yorktown was extremely slow, hardly progressing one mile an hour. The roads were a muddy quagmire and only made worse by the passage of the rebel infantry, wagons, and artillery. The Confederate retreat by the way of the Yorktown Road and the Lees Mill Road made the Union pursuit over these same routes an even more arduous undertaking. On Sunday, May 4th, however, the advance guard of Union cavalry, commanded by Brigadier General George Stoneman, caught up to and threatened the Confederate rear guard. The Confederate rear guard consisted of Jeb Stuart's cavalry, and late in the afternoon of the 4th, there was some sharp skirmishing between Stuart's troopers and the advancing Union horsemen. As Confederate infantry marching through Williamsburg turned back to help repulse the Yankees, the Federal commander, Stoneman, decided to break off the engagement and withdraw and wait until his own infantry could come up. That evening it began to rain, and it continued to rain for the next 30 hours. In his excellent book on the Peninsula Campaign, titled To the Gates of Richmond, Stephen Sears writes, quote, 
Monday, May 5th, dawned gray and bleak in a cold, hard downpour, and it was soon apparent to General Johnston that his supply trains and artillery would be a long time moving any distance on the single muddy road leading out of Williamsburg toward Richmond. He would have to buy time for them to escape. Longstreet's division would act as a rear guard to block pursuit. It was Longstreet's good fortune that at Williamsburg he had a good place to make a defensive fight. Sears continues, noting that at Williamsburg, quote, The peninsula here is only seven miles wide, and the area Longstreet had to defend was further narrowed by the course of two streams, Queens Creek and College Creek. The area between them was barely three miles wide. Indeed, in General Magruder's original plan for defending the peninsula, Williamsburg was designated his fallback position. To that end, during the winter, he had constructed a large earthen redoubt, which he pridefully named Fort Magruder, which commanded the junction of the Yorktown and Lees Mill roads in front of Williamsburg, and erected thirteen small redoubts to cover the rest of the shallow V of open ground between the two streams. To enlarge the defender's field of fire and hamper an attacking force, a wide belt of timber was felled to form a tangled slashing, in military terminology, an abatis. A Union officer, Major Charles S. Wainwright, was not alone in calling it a very ugly place to have to attack. The two Federal Infantry Divisions ordered to set off in pursuit of the retreating rebels on Sunday belonged to Joe Hooker and Baldy Smith. They had a tough time marching along the two roads already churned into a mess by the Confederates and Stoneman's Union Cavalry. Hooker on the Yorktown Road and Smith on the Lees Mill Road weren't in supporting distance of each other as they finally caught up to Stoneman's horsemen after dark on Sunday. The junction of the two roads was just outside Williamsburg, but the way the roads approached the town and separated as they were by swampy ground and tangled woods meant that the two Union divisions might as well have been on two different planets. The federal pursuit was commanded by Edwin V. Sumner. McClellan elected to remain behind at Yorktown and supervised the loading of a strong force on transports to be sent up the York River on an amphibious end run in an attempt to cut off the Confederate retreat. Joe Johnston anticipated such a move by McClellan and was anxious to get his retreating army past the danger spot at West Point. While Johnston continued to supervise the retreat, therefore, he left the rear guard at Williamsburg under the command of James Longstreet. Longstreet had his entire division to fend off the pursuing Yankees. The large division consisted of the brigades of A.P. Hill, Richard Anderson, George Pickett, Cadmus Wilcox, Raleigh Colston, and Roger Pryor. On the Union side, Key's Fourth Corps was represented by Baldy Smith's division, with Key's other two divisions to the rear, struggling through the mud on the Yorktown Road. Heinzelman's Third Corps was represented by Joe Hooker's division, with Heinzelman's 2nd Division, under Phil Kearney, marching through the mud some miles to the rear on the Lees Mill Road, and his 3rd Division was back at Yorktown under McClellan's orders. Sumner, who by seniority was McClellan's 2nd in command, normally commanded the 2nd Corps, but his troops were also left back at Yorktown with Little Mac, so Sumner was in charge of the pursuit of the Confederates, but as I just said, his own men were missing from the chase. 
So all of that's to say that when the Battle of Williamsburg opened on the morning of May 5th, the Union command structure was a bit top-heavy, since there were two divisions of Union troops on the field, led by three corps commanders. Hooker opened the fight on that Monday morning with his artillery, as his infantry splashed forward through the rain and mud west of the Lees Mill Road. The volume of fire steadily intensified, but Hooker, at this time, didn't attempt to storm Fort Magruder, since he was waiting for a supporting attack by Key's Fourth Corps on his right. There was no movement in that sector, however, and as the standoff went on, Longstreet decided to seize the initiative. Longstreet started the day with just two of his brigades in the Fort Magruder line, but he soon brought up three others and held another in close reserve. Longstreet put his senior brigadier, Richard H. Anderson, in immediate command of the attack on the Yankees across the way. As the Confederates pressed forward, the fighting along the western sector of the battlefield heated up, until by midday, the rebels had gained the advantage of position, and Hooker was in danger of having his flank turned. As the fighting heated up, Hooker called for reinforcements, but Sumner refused to send any of the units immediately on hand, so Hooker would instead have to rely on the 3rd Corps Division coming up from the rear, the one led by Phil Kearney. Sumner may have refused Hooker's request for reinforcements because just then he was distracted by another development. Earlier, a runaway slave had arrived at the Union headquarters with news that off to the right, on the opposite side of the battlefield from Hooker, there was a road through the woods that crossed a branch of Queens Creek called Cub Creek. The contraband said that if the Federals crossed Cub Creek, they could outflank the rebel defenses, since there was a redoubt covering the creek, but there was no one in it. An engineer officer sent out to confirm this intelligence returned and reported that the runaway slave was telling the truth. The road through the woods led to a dam across Cub Creek, and on the far side of the dam was a redoubt, but the enemy had left it unmanned. For some reason, the Confederates had left their eastern flank unguarded. Baldy Smith urged Sumner to let him take his entire division and seize this unexpected opportunity, but Sumner replied that it would be too dangerous. As Smith continued to press his point, though, Sumner finally relented and gave permission for Smith to send a single brigade to the right. Smith chose his best brigadier, Winfield Scott Hancock, and on the sly reinforced Hancock's command so that he had five regiments and two batteries of artillery. As Hancock's column set off on its two-mile march through the woods, on the opposite side of the battlefield, the sounds of battle increased as the Confederate assault there surged against Hooker. Sumner still steadfastly refused to send help to Hooker, so 3rd Corps Commander Heinzelman rode off to at least lend his personal support to Hooker, while 4th Corps Commander Keyes rode back toward Yorktown to see what had happened to his other two divisions. The rain let up somewhat, but still continued to fall in a steady drizzle, and the mist and smoke hung like a curtain over the battlefield. It made it difficult to distinguish friend from foe, as Joe Hooker's men battled against the Confederates, pressing them and threatening to outflank them. Hooker's line west of the Lees Mill Road was now bent sharply back and being pushed steadily toward the road. Finally, with a triumphant yell, the Confederates broke through and reached the road. The surging rebels overran ten guns. They started to drag four of them back toward Fort Magruder, but the other six were so deeply mired in the mud that they couldn't be moved. 
As the Confederates continued to press forward, pushing down the Lee's Mill Road, the remaining Union battery unlimbered right across the road in a small clearing and loaded canister. When the rebels were just 150 yards away, the Federal cannon opened fire and blew away the head of the rebel column. Meanwhile, Hooker and Heinzelman were desperately struggling to halt the retreat and form a line. Finding some bandsmen standing nearby, bewildered by the roar and chaos of battle, Heinzelman knew that their music would help rally the fleeing troops, so he shouted at them, Play! Play! It's all you're good for! Play, damn it! Play some marching tune! Play Yankee Doodle, or any other doodle you can think of! Only play something! But while some of Hooker's men afterwards credited the subsequent music with being worth a thousand men, what in fact saved the day here on this part of the battlefield was the arrival of Phil Kearney's division. Kearney had been a division commander only a few days, but he had driven his men forward through the mud toward the sound of the guns ahead. Coming up the Lees Mill Road behind Hooker's collapsing line, Kearney calmly directed his units into position and pointed out where they should fire. As Kearney's men joined the fight, the rebels' advance was halted, and then they were pushed off the Lees Mill Road and back into the woods and abatis to the west, but they held out stubbornly there, and in the late hours of the afternoon, there was a series of sharp and bloody firefights in the gloomy, drippy, thick, dripping thickets there. At about the same time as Kearney was leading his division into the fight on the western side of the battlefield, over to the east, on the opposite side of the field, Hancock's brigade was positioning itself squarely astride the Confederates' left flank. Hancock had successfully led his column through the woods, across the dam over Cub Creek, and advanced past the redoubt there to a second empty fortification, which was just over a mile from Fort Magruder. He arranged his artillery and his 3,400 men on a low rise and sent word back to Baldy Smith pleading for reinforcements so that he might exploit this golden opportunity and turn the rebels out of Fort Magruder. Baldy Smith responded to Winfield Scott Hancock's request for reinforcements by sending a brigade, only to have Sumner recall it. Whatever he had originally thought of this excursion around the enemy's flank, a thoroughly rattled Sumner was now thinking only of safeguarding his own position, and he ordered Hancock to fall back to Cub Creek. Hancock could hardly believe it when he received this order, and he sent a staff officer back to argue the matter. Meanwhile, he directed his artillery to open fire on the unsuspecting rebels across the way. Earlier in the day, as the fighting had intensified, Longstreet had taken the precaution of calling on D.H. Hill to furnish him with a reserve force should the rear guard get into trouble. As the Confederates retreated up the road toward Richmond, besides Longstreet's units, D.H. Hill's force was the rearmost command in the Confederate order of march. Hill sent back the brigade of Jubal Early, which marched back to Williamsburg and stacked arms on the green of the College of William and Mary and awaited further orders. They didn't have long to wait. Those two redoubts over to the east had escaped Longstreet's notice in the mist and rain, so it was a considerable surprise when Hancock's artillery opened up from that quarter. Early's brigade was called upon to march to the left to counter this unforeseen danger, while D.H. Hill ordered the rest of his division to return to support Early. 
Early's first instinct was to go forward and outflank the Yankee guns that were firing nearby, and D.H. Hill approved, as did Longstreet, although Longstreet counseled caution since the exact numbers and disposition of the enemy force was unknown. But neither Jubal Early nor D.H. Hill were ones to look too closely before they leaped, and as one of Early's men recalled afterward, quote, General Hill made us a slight address, telling us not to fire a shot, but to give them the cold steel. It was nearing five o'clock and growing darker in the rain and mist as Early's brigade marched toward the Confederate lines and periled left flank, and then turned into the woods opposite the point where the sound of the Yankee guns seemed to be coming from. Early's four regiments entered the woods side by side in line of battle, with the 24th North Carolina on the left, then the 38th Virginia, 23rd North Carolina, and 5th North Carolina. Early led the two left-hand regiments, while D.H. Hill led the two on the right. The rebels struggled through the strip of woodland before them, which was half a mile deep, with tangled undergrowth and swampy ground. The advancing regiments soon lost their alignment in the difficult terrain and never regained it. The 24th Virginia, which Early had led as a colonel at First Manassas, emerged from the woods first to face an unexpected sight. Rather than encountering the rear of a Yankee battery as they had expected, the guns were forward a quarter mile farther to the left. The Confederates had badly miscalculated their advance and come out in the open well in front of the Union cannon. Without waiting for the rest of the brigade to emerge from the woods, Jubal Early shouted, Follow me, and wheeled his Virginians to the left and straight toward the enemy guns. At just this moment, a disgusted Winfield Scott Hancock was starting to withdraw in obedience to Sumner's repeated order to fall back to Cub Creek. The Confederate attack provided Hancock with a handy excuse to ignore Sumner's orders. The Virginians were rushing forward across a soggy wheat field when the Federals, from their strong position, opened a murderous fire upon them. Casualties among the attackers mounted rapidly, and Early himself fell wounded, shot through the shoulder. Losing blood and in shock, he was carried to the rear. As the 24th Virginia was making its charge, a second Confederate regiment, the 5th North Carolina, emerged from the woods, and D.H. Hill got his first look at the battlefield. What he saw shocked him. The 5th North Carolina was the rightmost regiment in the brigade line, and the Carolinians emerged fully 800 to 900 yards from the Federal guns off to their left. And to make matters worse, there was a huge gap between them and Early's Virginians. The two regiments that should have filled that gap, the 38th Virginia and 23rd North Carolina, were still struggling through the woods, tangled in the thickets, and bogged down by the marshy ground. But with Early's men under heavy fire and clearly in need of help, Hill couldn't wait for the others to come up, and so the 5th North Carolina made a left wheel and started through the wheat field. The 5th North Carolina's attack, however, was doomed. Hancock had his Federals arrayed along the crest of the high ground, with 3,400 rifles and eight cannon to oppose the advance of two rebel regiments, with perhaps 1,200 men and no supporting artillery. As D.H. Hill led the North Carolinians forward, he quickly realized the strength of the Yankee position and ordered the assault broken off. The leading elements of the attacking Confederate regiments had reached a rail fence only a hundred yards from the Federal line when Hill's order to fall back reached them. 
They were just starting to withdraw when Hancock ordered a counterattack. A soldier in the 7th Maine later wrote that he and his fellow Yankees charged over the crest, quote, with a terrible yell and poured in a volley, following it up with its steady fire. The enemy, who doubtless thought we sprung from the earth, halted with terror and amazement. Their dead were dropping like ten pins, one after another, end quote. Harper's weekly artist, Alfred Wode, made a quick sketch of the scene and wrote on his drawing, quote, Line of infantry all broken and running, enemy dead and wounded covering the field. End quote. The 24th Virginia had the shortest distance to cover to reach the woods, and the skedaddling Virginians escaped without many additional casualties. But the 5th North Carolina had slanted well out into the wheat field so as to come in on the right of the Virginians, and they had to run a murderous gauntlet of fire to reach safety. D.H. Hill would say, quote, The slaughter of the 5th North Carolina Regiment was one of the most awful things I ever saw. End quote. The regiment lost 302 dead, wounded, and captured, a casualty rate of 68%. Early's brigade as a whole lost 508 men in the disastrous assault. Hancock's loss was an even 100. At about the time Winfield Scott Hancock was repulsing the attack of Jubal Early's brigade, there was an outburst of cheering at Sumner's headquarters in the center of the Union line as George McClellan reached the battlefield. McClellan would tell his wife that at the moment he arrived, quote, the men cheered like fiends, and I saw at once that I could save the day, end quote. But in truth, the day no longer needed saving, and soon enough, with darkness settling over the battlefield, the firing died out of its own accord. His late arrival, though, didn't stop Little Mac from claiming Williamsburg as his victory. Francis W. Palfrey fought in the 20th Massachusetts on the peninsula and was an early historian of the campaign. Palfrey concluded that the commanding general's belated arrival at Williamsburg signaled a pattern of behavior. He wrote, quote, Curiously enough, there was always something for McClellan to do more important than to fight his own battles. In this instance, Little Mac had considered the loading of Franklin's division on transports at Yorktown to be more important than investigating the growing sounds of battle 11 miles away at Williamsburg. It's unclear why McClellan couldn't have left the job of embarking his division to Franklin himself, especially since as early as 9 a.m., McClellan himself reported hearing, quote, heavy firing from Williamsburg. Baldy Smith, disgusted with Sumner's handling of the fight, sent messages back all day long asking for the commanding general to come up and take charge of the battlefield, and Smith was not alone in making this appeal. Yet George McClellan later claimed it was only at 1 p.m. that he learned a serious fight was in progress at Williamsburg. Even then, Little Mac didn't reach the battlefield until about 5 p.m. As Stephen Sears points out in his book, To the Gates of Richmond, quote, Clearly the young Napoleon did not relish the prospect of commanding in battle, and on this day, and on other days to come, he would demonstrate his reluctance to do so. History never says goodbye. It just says... See you later. Music
Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produced the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics, we go back to source materials in their original languages, and we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer, or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast, wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. Tuesday, May 6th, dawned clear and pleasant. As Union skirmishers edged forward at first light, they discovered the Confederate positions deserted. Longstreet and D.H. Hill had quietly slipped away through Williamsburg and followed the rest of the rebel army up the road toward Richmond. McClellan boasted of another, quote, brilliant victory. But if any victory could be justly claimed after the fighting at Williamsburg, the Confederates had the better claim. Joe Johnston's rear guard had beaten back the Federal pursuit, and the Confederate Army continued its retreat unimpeded. Confederate casualties, including the cavalry skirmishing on Sunday, came to just over 1,600. Federal casualties were about 2,200. That the Union number is considerably larger is mostly due to the fact that the Federal High Command's handling of the battle was less than stellar. Baldy Smith bluntly summed up the command performance as, quote, a beastly exhibition of stupidity and ignorance, end quote. Some 13,750 Confederates in the divisions of Longstreet and D.H. Hill saw action at Williamsburg, and while at every stage of the fighting the Federals had more men at the front, they didn't benefit from that advantage until the end of the day. During most of the day-long battle against Joe Hooker west of the Lees Mill Road, the Confederates under Richard Anderson enjoyed a better than 1,300-man advantage over Hooker's unsupported division. Only late in the day, after the arrival of Kearney's troops, did the Federals finally gain a manpower advantage in this sector. Meanwhile, on the Yorktown Road, two of Baldy Smith's brigades, over 6,000 men, idled away the hours, having just 12 men wounded by stray shots. Off to the rear, six other Union brigades never reached the battlefield at all or were too late to have any effect on the fighting. Silas Casey's division was discovered at midday a mile from the battlefield with their arms stacked and boiling coffee. 
After the battle, Hooker angrily complained that while his division was nearly bled to death, there were 30,000 Yankee soldiers standing, standing idly nearby within supporting distance. Hooker exaggerated, but only slightly. The actual number was 25,000. The one bright spot for the Federals was the repulse of Early's brigade by Winfield Scott Hancock. McClellan quickly seized upon this incident to support his claim of a brilliant victory at Williamsburg. He described the episode in glowing terms and commented that, quote, Hancock was superb, end quote. Northern newspapers picked up on the phrase, and thereafter Hancock was known as Hancock the Superb. But Joe Hooker and Phil Kearney felt insulted by McClellan's singling out of Hancock, and the two men never forgave Little Mac for the slight. The northern newspaper's glowing coverage of Hancock's part in the battle was balanced by highly negative accounts of Sumner's role, and despite his claims that Williamsburg was a brilliant victory, Little Mac was furious at the mismanagement of the battle. In a letter to his wife, he confessed he was appalled by, quote, the utter stupidity and worthlessness of the corps commanders. Heaven alone can help a general with such commanders under him, end quote. McClellan was particularly angry at Sumner, who Little Mac said had, quote, proved that he was even a greater fool than I had supposed and had come within an ace of having us defeated, end quote. The one silver lining that McClellan found in the otherwise dismal episode was the Army's morale. It was just as well that he had arrived on the scene in the way that he did, Little Mac said, quote, for the officers and men feel that I saved the day. Little Mac was able to make his dramatic appearance on the field at Williamsburg after the fighting there was already well underway because he had initially stayed behind at Yorktown to supervise the embarkation of William B. Franklin's division. After the unexpected Confederate withdrawal from Yorktown, McClellan had acted with uncharacteristic haste and put together a plan that called for Franklin to make an amphibious landing at West Point up the York River and cut off the rebels' retreat up the peninsula. But when Franklin set off on May 6th, the day after the battle at Williamsburg, he was already 48 hours too late. On the morning of May 7th, Franklin put his division ashore at a place called Eltham's Landing. Had it been two days earlier, he might have then struck out and marched five miles to hit the main road up the peninsula, 18 miles beyond Williamsburg, to block the rebels' retreat. But it was not two days earlier, and on the morning of May 7th, the Confederate withdrawal was already well underway on that road up the peninsula, and so rather than poke a stick into that particular hornet's nest, Franklin chose to content himself with securing his lonely bridgehead behind enemy lines at Eltham's Landing. As we've mentioned, Joe Johnson had been expecting just such a move by McClellan, so the Confederate commander wasn't surprised by this attempt to cut off his retreat, nor was he unduly concerned by it. He simply detached a force to keep the Yankee landing contained while the rest of his army and supply trains continued their retreat toward Richmond. The force that Johnston detached to contain the enemy bridgehead included John Bell Hood's Texas Brigade. Hood's orders were, quote, to feel the enemy gently and fall back, end quote. But Hood liked to fight, and his brigade, composed of the 1st, 4th, and 5th Texas, plus the 18th Georgia, which the Texans had adopted as the 
Third Texas, that brigade was perfectly willing to follow Hood's aggressive lead. Although the fight at Eltham's Landing on May 7th was really just a heavy skirmish rather than a full-fledged battle, it was marked by the same aggressive Confederate leadership and tactics that typified the fight at Williamsburg. At Williamsburg, the Confederates had one brigade commander wounded, Jubal Early, and three regimental commanders killed and three others wounded. And then at Eltham's Landing, Hood's example of leading from the front almost cost him his life. While advancing through the woods toward contact with the Yankees, Hood had his men go forward with unloaded muskets to avoid the possibility of friendly fire incidents. The rebels stumbled upon a squad of enemy pickets in a clearing. Just 15 paces away, Hood wrote, quote, A corporal of the enemy drew down his musket upon me as I stood in front of my line. End quote. Fortunately for Hood, Private John Deal of the 4th Texas had disobeyed orders and was advancing with a loaded musket. Deal shot the Yankee corporal before he could fire at Hood. Hood's brigade pushed the Federals back through the woods until the Yankees, after falling back more than a mile to the open ground above the landing, finally stood firm and held there. Hood broke off the action since he saw no further benefit from pressing his attack further, and he had already more than carried out his orders from Joe Johnston. Hood's casualties came to 48 men, while the Federals lost around 185. In To the Gates of Richmond, Stephen Sears writes, quote, In the wake of the Eltham's landing fight, the Confederate Army continued its retreat toward Richmond, not in the least troubled by McClellan's attempt to outflank it. The manner in which this came about, however, was not as Johnston had expected. General Hood, have you given an illustration of the Texas idea of feeling an enemy gently and falling back? He asked. What would your Texans have done, sir, if I had ordered them to charge and drive back the enemy? Hood considered the question soberly before answering, I suppose, General, he said, they would have driven them into the river and tried to swim out and capture the gunboats. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time isn't a book, but it's a back issue of a Civil War magazine. Uh, yep, if you care to pick it up, or dig it out if you already have it, but in the March 2001 issue of Civil War Times, you'll find an article dealing with the Battle of Williamsburg titled, The Men Who Made Hancock Superb. The article is by a fellow named George W. Contant, and his premise is that if not for the men of the 33rd New York and their heroic actions at Williamsburg, beating back the 5th North Carolina and 24th Virginia, then the career of Winfield Scott Hancock might have ended rather abruptly there in May 1862. Uh, anyway, it's a really interesting article, uh, really focusing in on this one episode during the battle, and it's well worth checking it out if you're so inclined. So that's the March 2001 issue of Civil War Times, which actually back then was still Civil War Times Illustrated. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. This past weekend, we released a show for the members of the Strawfoot Brigade that was focused on another incident during the Peninsula Campaign, and that was the engagement at Dam Number no. 1 along the Warwick River. 
uh, we decided to slip that show in there before we started in with the Fall of New Orleans uh, there on the members episodes. At any rate, we have a couple of new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to thank this week, Dustin and Tracy. And then there's a programming note we want to share as we wrap up this show, and it's that we won't have the next new episode out to y'all until the weekend of December 6th. Yeah, with uh, travel plans and with the Thanksgiving holiday coming up, we decided the easiest thing for us to do would be to just take a bit of a break from the podcast, so that's what we're going to do. But we hope y'all have a great Thanksgiving, and if you have travel plans, be safe. Definitely. Okay, so we'll talk to you again the first weekend in December, but thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time as McClellan's march up the peninsula toward Richmond continues. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.